I'm Natasha Breyer, ASC, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, guess what this is? What is this? This is episode 50 of the Cinematography Podcast. I don't feel 50. I feel every episode <laughs> from Jason Wingrove all the way through now. That's right. Six years ago, uh, who would have guessed it would have taken us six years to get to 50? Well, for, to be fair, though, there's probably about a dozen special episodes in there. So really, if you want to add all those in, we're probably 60. But regular episode, yep, we're at the big 5-0. And, and I want to say that I think the last 40 were within the last 10 year, if I'm not mistaken. It just feels that way. But yeah, yeah probably most of them have. Well, we're, we're now we're doing episode a week. Yeah, it's crazy. Crazy. Well, <laughs> that's, that's all because of uh, Alana Cody and her uh, her hard work. And whip cracking. Hey, uh, Ben, we have to uh, cue some sentimental music right now because we received a love letter. Love letter? A love letter. I'm sorry I'm married. <laughs> this is a love letter that you will want to hear. It is from a listener named Justice Page. And uh, Justice writes... Justice Page? Justice Page. That, that is... That is, that is an that, awesome name. That's you know, his name. Cinematographer uh, and gaffer. Quick yeah. side note, I know a guy in the camera department back in Atlanta when I used to live in the Southeast whose name was Stoke T. Renegade. You can really? look him up on IMDb. It's an awesome name. His name was Stoke T. Renegade. Uh, I once met, met a grip, a key grip named Cool Breeze, spelled with a K. You can, yeah. you can find his name on Sweet. IMDb. Yeah, pretty cool. Anyway, sorry. All right, I, so I, Justice Page writes, I decided to go for a walk one night. On this night, I couldn't shake the feeling that there was something missing in my life. Like there was this large chunk of my time on the road and in my downtime that was going to waste. How could I keep engaged in my cinematography in these otherwise empty moments? I always kind of looked down on podcasts. They seemed a bit gimmicky and fad-like. But I felt compelled to open my podcast app for the first time ever on this walk and search for cinematography. I doubted there was going to be anything substantial. I stumbled across this so-called cinematography podcast. So-called. Right away, seemed well-reviewed. I scrolled and saw all these interviews' names I didn't recognize, but Rachel Morrison stuck out to me. So I hit play. It ended up being the longest walk I've taken, around an hour and 22 minutes. That's probably how long the interview was. Um, We talked to Rachel for a while. Uh, To be precise, and that was a little over 40 days ago. Today, I've now listened to 31 of the episodes in their entirety, and the work I do and how I view cinematography has fundamentally changed. I'm in the middle of shooting my 28th film, and I've noticed this time around a big difference in how I approached reading the script, how I collaborated with the director, and how I executed the film on set. I have this question for you, Justice. Lighting or framing? (laughs) He'll have to to write in for that. Okay. Okay. And I have a massive thanks that I owe to this podcast and the incredible work you all do. Most days I hear Ben and Ilya's voice more than any other. Banana pants, in parentheses, which I know is something you like to say. I do say that. I I wasn't (laughs) aware that I I said that. You do, Mr. Banana Pants. Uh, This podcast. I'm wearing my banana pants right now. They're actually made out of bananas. It it starts to get squishy. Smell delightful. Uh, This podcast has become incredibly close to my heart. And I hope you guys don't stop making them anytime soon. 
There's nothing like this podcast for us cinematographers. With love, Justice. P.S. I'm glad I discovered the show six years in, so I had plenty of episodes to binge, but I've almost listened to every one of them, so pick up the pace! I mean, by my math, you have 19 left, Justice, so... <laughs> That's true, this guy's got plenty. So, so. <laughs> And since I don't think there's many under an hour, he's got... Uh, yeah, you got like a, a full, at least, day of non-stop listening with no sleep. But hey, Justice, I have to say, I, I really appreciate getting this letter. This thank is, you so This much. is not a, a, an email like any other we've ever received, and uh, and thank you from the bottom of, of my heart and uh, Ben's as well. Yeah, yeah, was, I mean, this is why we do it. We're, you know, we're inspired by these cinematographers that we bring in. We want to inspire other people. You know, we never really talk about this, but like whenever a cinematographer comes in here, we kind of have a spiel that we give them because uh, uh, some have listened to the podcast. Some have not. Many have not. Most have not. Let's be honest. Okay, it's true. Most don't listen to podcasts. They're too busy making, you know, the MCU movies. They can't even update their own website. Yeah, not, none, to not one of them has has a, has a current website. No, no, a couple of them do, but not many. James Laxon. Oh, shit, spoiler. I know, James Laxon, his website's up to date. Oh, yeah, that's true. Anyway, but uh, so we always have a spiel where we kind of say like, hey, you know, we're not here to do gotcha journalism. We want to make you sound smart and we want to inspire people with whatever your process is. We, we just want to dig into that. And so, you know, it, it means everything in the world to, us to to get a letter like this from Justice because, you know, we're, we're hoping that whenever we talk to one of these people that we're giving somebody out there an idea that they could take their art further or that they could dig in deeper or if they're thinking about pursuing this as a career that they realize that there's a world possibilities and it's not just like uh, you know you're a nobody or you're making a new star wars movie like there's a lot of different kinds of cinematographers and people who and and ways of working i'm not trying to uh toot our own horn too much here and we'll get out of this in just a second but i have to say that something that maybe you're not even aware of is that uh we have a really good peer-to-peer sort of listener group out there i get people who come into the shop all the time who are very talented, very successful cinematographers in their own right who he have some have been on the show, many have not. Do they demand a shirt? Like they should, as anyone who comes here should ask for you and demand they, a t-shirt. They do not demand a shirt, but what they okay. do do is say, oh, I listened to the podcast and I heard this person talking about this and that was really great for me to hear that I'm not the only, only one who faces that or I loved hearing how they deal with that sort of thing. So there are some, there is some peer-to-peer, like we're getting people who are talking about their craft and people who are actually also doing that craft than comparing notes, which I think is fantastic. Well, and, and some of the DPs who've been on here, and I probably haven't told you this either, will occasionally text me or something, and uh, a few of them like listen to every episode. Yes, and and that's why we sometimes get trolled by them too. So. Which is fine. I'm happy to be <laughs> trolled by anyone who's ever been on this show. Uh, okay, so hey, Ben, if uh, if we haven't lost part of our audience, we should probably move on to our close focus Close segment. focus, as as coined by George Foyt. Oh, God, you're still giving him credit. Okay. I want to give George credit. He's a really good guy. Okay, so close focus. Were we going to talk about the the retirement of Jim Gennard and the uh, ending of the red phone program? Did you? Yeah, it was red, most... red oxygen. Uh, is there hydrogen? Hydrogen. <laughs> <laughs> oxygen uh, was the Oprah network, wasn't it? Uh, yes. Red Hydrogen. Yeah, yes, yeah. a $1,200 phone that was going to revolutionize the phone and filmmaking world. Yeah, I, I, I never quite understood it. I did see one in the wild. I was shooting I was shooting video for an escape room in Seattle, and our DP was a guy named Rakesh Malik, and he we were shooting on the 8K red, I don't know what. Helium. Helium. I don't know. It's I, a great I, camera. I lost. I got one here. I lost all of, like, after... Uh, 
And I gave up after the Epic MX something somewhere around there. I was like, I don't need to know what the sensor is called. Anyway, uh, Rakesh was shooting this thing and he had, he had the phone and he was showing me some of the, like the 3d pictures that he was taking. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of cool. I mean, you know, it's not necessarily my thing, but I thought it was kind of cool. But also I was like, why do I want a red phone? It's, it just seems weird. It's like if Twinkies made a phone, you know, not well, I mean, red was trying to, they were trying to put their stamp on. They said, Hey, you know, the future is mobile. I want a Twinkie phone. I want a phone. I want a Twinkie that I can call people on and text people with a Twinkie. Go on. Uh, Red was Red was taking a stand. They were planting a flag saying, look, uh, all these other people are making these phones that we think are substandard that happen to feature a camera. And they were going to go forward and say, hey, here's this very ambitious plan to make this thing with all these add ons. And it was going to enable uh, a next generation of creator, a next generation of whomever people who were not cussed comfortable using a camera now they're just going to use their phone and they were going to get all the you know the, the red uh ecosystem but th- clearly that that didn't happen that that wasn't what happened and uh and now, i think that i think that part of the problem is and i know that you are an android user i am but i think that the majority of people who are kind of in the business are iphone apple people i think that's not true no no uh, I, I i i i don't often come across android users i know that you know, there, there's nothing wrong with Androids. They work just fine. But I think that if there, there's no way that you could do this, but if there was a way that you could make a red branded iPhone that did all the crap that they did, you probably would sell a lot more of them mm-hmm. than, uh, than an Android. Uh, I'm going to disagree. I all think right. that it totally depends on where you are in the world. And I happen to know that Apple does not have the market share everywhere. So it's, and but I just, and, no, I, I, I'm not saying that Apple has the market share everywhere. I'm saying that like the, the concentration of red users are filmmakers. A lot of them are out here. I mean, they're all over the world, obviously, but a lot of them are here and a lot of them are in the film industry or people who are, who and there's that, not, that is not automatically an Apple thing. No, but I, I would speculate unscientifically that it correlates probably a little closer with with iphone users i'm gonna call bullshit on that feel free <laughs> okay i, I want i don't, we're, I don't, we're, I don't we're digressing here way far, far afield from what we're supposed to be talking about well so. which is well i mean it's just kind of the disruptive presence that has been both extremely positive and somewhat controversial i wouldn't say negative about red as a company since they first showed up with jim Gennard retiring i don't know what's going to happen with red i remember when ted chilowitz stepped down from red and it was like oh no what's gonna what's what will become of red but even before the cam before we had a camera you and i were at nab together when they unveiled basically just a fiberglass shell of what the red one was going to look like and it really isn't what it ended up looking like And, and i remember lining up to look at a demo of like some stuff that was shot on a prototype sensor. And I remember when it was over, I applauded and everyone kind of looked at me like I was an asshole. I'm like, Oh no, I'm not supposed to applaud. All right. Whatever. <laughs> um, well, because red at the time was like a brand new, there were kind of a, an interloper in a world that was dominated primarily by, I'd say Sony and Panasonic, maybe a little bit of Panavision, you know, a few other places. And it was like, as we were transforming uh, from shooting on film and tape to shooting digitally and a lot of other things. And you, of all people, had been working at Dalsa 
And Dalsa had been making this uh, this giant 4K camera, but it was like, you know, kind of world had world changing possibilities. I think I, I still would argue if Dalsa had stayed with that, they probably would be the industry leader of that today. But Red came in and ate their lunch with a cheaper thing that was a 4K camera. Yeah, they get a lot of credit for being a, a disruptor or being an innovator when it comes to 4K. But uh, they weren't first. Uh, they weren't best. What I argue that Red did really well, actually, was be persistent. Red took all the naysayers and eventually converted many of them to having to give them uh, a tremendous amount of uh, respect and credit because they came out with a camera that uh, had an artifact that no one had ever really seen before uh, here to this point, which was uh, the rolling shutter artifact, which had to do with the way in which the sensor would take uh, image data off of the sensor. And well, we were used to, to CCDs, and that was a C- the first major CMOS sensor that I think was kind of mass, you know, it was well, in all it, of our hands. It, that that uh, CMOS sensor was, uh, was was very, it was it was a real bellwether for uh, the future of, uh, of cinema, and a lot of people who'd never seen that sort of artifact learned uh, how to minimize it, how to get over it, and when, as soon as that was then... Deemed, or how to pretend that it didn't matter to them. Well, yeah, or as soon as they were, they learned how to ameliorate the effects as much as possible, it became an acceptable form of production. And a lot of people actually said, well, we can, there's other artifacts that we're living with. This is another one that, that we can too. But where I think that Red really did well was convincing people to adopt their workflows, their ecosystem, and to get them to buy into a new way of shooting, a new way of working that people hadn't done before. That, to me, is is really what's interesting, is that they had an incredible uh, amount of influence over new people coming in, as well as established people, and getting them to then buy into their whole world, oh, which, yeah. was, which was different than everything else up until that point. Um, when I made my feature Alien Raiders, we were talking about possibly shooting it on the red. There were uh, It just wasn't quite out yet. You know, the early versions of that camera, uh, more complicated. The red one was kind of a tank. It was a big camera, but, you know, it, well, it gave you 4K at a time when that was very exotic. And the price tag on that camera was, you know, a fraction of any of the other cameras that were out. True. Um, you know, you get fully up and running for, I think it was like 19 grand or something. It was a little more than that. I think it was 17500 for a body, but then probably when you're all said and done with uh, media and media reader and you know yeah. basic stuff, you're probably around the $25,000. I mean, compared to like a Panasonic HPX 3000, which would have been a contemporary camera of, of that, I think was a $60,000 camera body. Yeah, that sounds about right. I don't know why I remember all this crap. That's well, you know, useless was, information. Well, it was a very uh, traumatic time in your life. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's burned into my, it's seared in my brain. But I, and I feel like the Red One, I shot a project on the, on an MX Red One probably four years ago and it looked great, but it, it was a lot of camera to haul around. No, what, what Red really did well was, which uh, I got to say that I was not convinced that they could do based on their debut is that they figured out how to iterate pivot and do better they've kept yeah. doing better and better and so uh even though they the hydrogen one wasn't necessarily a runaway hit based on their previous stuff i was pretty interested in what they were going to do next i actually thought that like whatever their next thing might be really a big deal so i also think like they made nab a little bit more spicy and interesting like i remember when they had kind of uh they were going to have a big unveiling of i want to say it was the monstro sensor one of the big sensors that they released mm-hmm. and they had like uh 
people could bring their reds in and they would upgrade them there. And they had like a clean room that they had built on the show floor. And it turned out that it was kind of a publicity stunt, but it kind of wasn't. I remember when they were giving people free tattoos, which like, do you remember that publicity stunt? I, I don't. And I don't want a free <laughs> tattoo from anyone. Yeah. Um, uh, they, they were, they were giving them away. There were people there getting their, getting their tattoos. But on. like, again, I, I feel like there's a lot of upside to them. A lot of great movies got made on, on those cameras. My wife, Alicia shot a short called right on the red one uh, shot by Stephanie Martin that got into Sundance. I, I shot a short called future boyfriend on a red Epic that was shot by George Foyt uh, that got into Tribeca, you know, like, no, I don't think anyone's doubting the capability of the tool in the right hands. I mean, yeah, there, there Peter were... Jackson made all the Hobbit Hobbit movies on the Epic, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I don't know if it's the end of an era. I don't know what the future has in, in hold in store for them, but it sounds like it won't be with Jim Gennard and it sounds like it won't uh, be with phones. So interesting. Well, it'll be interesting to see, too, because like Jim Gennard before this, his big claim to fame was Oakley sunglasses. Right. That's right. Uh, well, which is a massive, successful company. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's I mean, I, I don't know if that's where his money came from, but I feel like that was probably a couple of bucks came from that, <laughs> that fueled kind of his his incursion into the camera world. And, you know, I, I sort of feel like it definitely had an impact on cinema. People would be watching movies that were shot on those red cameras, even those early red cameras, you know, well into the future. Yeah. Uh, and here's more time you and I spent talking about red than I think in all of our previous episodes together. It's interesting to me because like red was, uh, certainly at one point a company where they dominated sort of the publicity and social media and stuff. People were really, really talking about them all the time. I don't hear them talking about the company the way that they used yeah, to. So. Well, yeah, I sort of feel like it's, it's moved on. In fact, actually our very first guest Jason Wingrove. That's right. He had the Red Center podcast. Red Center, which they changed to the RC because they started kind of opening it up to talking about not red cameras. It, it was uh, Jason Wingrove uh, talking about, you know, whatever camera tech was out. But it started because they were all they were VFX people and they were all excited about what the red could do. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, that was a big topic of discussion back in 2009, 2008, 2009. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I, I, I mean, a lot of cameras go out of, go out of favor. I always think about the, uh, silicon imaging, uh, 2k camera that was used to shoot slumdog millionaire, which did, uh, Anthony Dodd mantle, another one of our bucket list cinematographers, by the way, won the, uh, best cinematography Oscar shooting on the SI 2k and, uh, yeah, back in 2009. And then that camera, like poof, gone. You would think that if you made a piece of technology and it wins the Oscar for best cinematography, or I should say that technology is used to win the Oscar, that your company might be like uh, bulletproof. Like you might then be, you know, yeah. around to stay. But when was the last time you heard anything from SI2K? Uh, I mean, or SI, I should say. Interestingly yeah. enough, like when we were getting ready to make Alien Raiders, I uh, sent Walt Lloyd off on a wild goose chase to say like, hey, how would you feel about shooting on the camera they used for Slumdog Millionaire? And he looked into it and I think that there were like 10 bodies in all of LA yeah. at the time. And he's like, I just don't feel comfortable with it because, you know, like if one of them goes down, we're screwed. It just goes to show it is very much the painter, not the paintbrush. I mean, SI is another example of a camera that requ- required you to work a, a certain way that might be different than people are used to working. But if you know how to use your tool, then you can create fantastic, fantastic well, images. And I feel like it's something that doesn't sound so exotic today, but the SI 2K at the time was like basically a lens mount that ran to a laptop to be recorded. 
And so it was, you know, like the size of your hand and you could put any PL mount lens you wanted on it. I think it was all 16 millimeter lenses. It, well, you could put 35 on there as well. But yes, it was small. It was a small format. So, But it, it enabled people to do crazy stuff that today is ridiculously commonplace there's a thousand cameras that'll do that but in you know 2007 that was you know an insane thing to be able to do that's true so anyway so so ben who's on the who's on the show today on the show today is natasha Breyer. i was very excited to speak with her not to be down on all of the uh, amazing superhero dps that we've been talking to and by that i mean people who shoot superhero movies but somebody who shoots crazy fucking off the wall banana pants which apparently is my that's your catchphrase my now. catchphrase like her work is eye-popping, eye-catching, and beautiful. Uh, Neon Demon is is probably one of the more recent huge examples, but uh, it was very exciting to talk to her, and she did not disappoint. Well, uh, let's go to the interview. Woohoo! The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So we are here in uh, Burbank, California at Hot Rod Cameras with Natasha Breyer. Thank you so much for coming out. It's exciting to meet you. We start off the podcast with uh, a question, and especially having uh, looked at a bunch of your work, I have a feeling which way this is going to go, but I'm I'm curious. And this is really just to open up the discussion of cinematography craft and and what guiding principles guide your work. I have a belief that uh, most cinematographers, when they're reading a script or looking at a project, they are either thinking mostly composition when they start or they're thinking mostly lighting when they start. Also, I could be full of shit. When you're reading a script what or or looking at a project, because I know a lot of the stuff that you've done are like commercials, music videos, where, you know, the script will be different than a screenplay. What's the first thing that occurs to you as you're looking at that material? Well, I think it really depends on, on the script, you know, because some scripts could be very atmospheric and then you're imagining a world. Mm-hmm. So that would probably relate more to lighting. And some scripts um, are already describing a lot more about movement and mm-hmm. and then you think you're thinking more about camera and composition it's hard to say but actually i don't think about either of them when i first read a script uh when i first read a script i try to read it really as a human not as a cinematographer mm-hmm. and engage with the characters and their emotional journeys and the dramaturgy of the script and see if i resonate with it from that perspective and then if I do, if I really enjoyed it as a human, <laughs> um, then I will start to think about it as a cinematographer and maybe read it again. But first I, I have to resonate you know, with it in other levels before I start to think about images. Now, how does that a- a- apply when you're doing something that's a music video or something like that where you're probably just reacting to a treatment that might be you know, a, a couple of pages long? Yeah, that's totally different yeah. because with the music videos is mostly a visual idea, a visual concept. So you just get that and then you immediately have images that are the the, the references yeah. to look at. And you can immediately see if this is going to be something that is going to be exciting for you to do or not. But with the scripts, it's, you know, it's totally different because yeah. there's so many 
possible interpretations and approaches. Well, and you've worked like extensively in commercials and music videos and narrative uh, features. So you, you kind of have, have run the gamut of the, of the kinds of work that cinematographers could do. And if our listeners don't know your name immediately, what's your website to send them to? Because I, I feel, what's the, I don't know the URL. It's my name as well. So if they don't know my name, <laughs> it's natashabriar.com. So go there and you can see her reel immediately. I found it to be, you know, completely like eye-popping, amazing visuals. And my theory was that you were kind of a compositionally based person, but I definitely understand where you're coming from, that you're like looking at the story. But when we, and and we're going to kind of go through your career a little bit more sequentially, but when you look at a movie like Neon Demon, for instance, you know, to me, it's like when I think of that movie, I think of the cinematography and that's not always the case. And I I understand, you know, Nicholas Winning Refn, like he makes very visual films. And I feel like the cinematography in that one, you know, went up a notch above even his other stuff, which which I love. I love his work. But let's start kind of at the beginning. When was the first time in your life that it occurred to you that being a cinematographer was a thing that you could pursue? Well, when I was a teenager, I started to do, take photos and I did a course on photography, mm-hmm. which led into a degree on like black and white artistic photography. And I thought I was going to be a photographer, but I was the youngest in that photography school. And what happened was my friends who were one or two years older, uh, I was in high school at the time. Mm -hmm. um, So they graduated before I did. And then when they were going to go to university, they chose to go to film school. Mm -hmm. And because they were photographers, when they started to do their short films and exercises at film school, they organically became the cinematographers because people were choosing them and asking them because they were the ones that knew something about this. So by seeing them doing it was that I've learned that there was someone called cinematographer. And where was this? Where were you going to school? This was in Argentina. I'm from Argentina. Oh, cool. Uh, Yeah, so this was in Argentina in the early 90s. And yes, I mean, I always loved cinema. My parents are both very cinephiles. So I loved movies, but I I had nobody in my family working in movies or anything like that. Uh, So I had no idea what a cinematographer was, what an editor was, nothing. What were your like your early influences uh, in cinema? Like what were you what were you seeing in uh, Argentina back then? We were seeing a lot of French cinema from the 60s and 70s. I was obsessed with Godard, Mm -hmm. but also Tarkovsky and Bresson, Fassbinder. Then I got into the indie, American indies at the time, which were, you know, Jarmusch and Hal Hartley. I was obsessed with Hal. And then a little bit later, Leo Carax, also from France. And then Wong Kar Wai started to appear with um, Chunkin Express and Fallen yeah, Agents, yeah. you know, the, his early work. So, yes, I, I think a mix of all that people were the, the well, earlier I, can, I mean, honestly, I can, see, I can see that in your work. I can see mm-hmm. the influence of a lot of that. You know, yeah. I, I see how you're taking a lot of those ideas to the next level. And so after high school, did you go to film school and where did you go? Yeah, well, that's a long story. Um, when I graduated from high school, I was still 17. My whole family moved to Barcelona, so I had to move with them. <laughs> and I lived in Barcelona for a few months. Mm-hmm. And then it was the summer break. And I had left behind my first boyfriend in Argentina. So As soon as it was the summer break, I went back to Argentina on holidays. And when I got there, I got a job in a magazine that was like similar to what would be Time magazine here. And I was working uh, as an assistant secretary for the photography editor 
Um, Were you like planning on staying in Argentina permanently? Well, I just didn't want to leave because I, I had spent like half a year in Spain. You mm-hmm. know, I was just 18. Yeah. No friends. First of many, how you say, moving country. Yeah. yeah. Uh, migrations. Yeah, yeah. In my life. So quite traumatic, you know, at that age. First boyfriend ever left in Argentina and all my friends and my photography school and everything. So was your school specifically a photography school? Yeah, the, in Argentina it was like a black and white creative photography school. Like really really, really training people to do their art. So you know? in your early teens you knew that photography was going to be a big thing. Yeah, um you know, I guess it also exists here in America like once a year you get a photographer that comes to the school and takes a group photo of mm-hmm. everyone. Yeah. So we had that and when I was I think 16, this guy comes to take the photo and then he says like, oh, I'm going to be doing this workshop on Thursdays teaching photography. So you could just like sign up for that and, you know, stay after hours and learn about photography. And I thought that was interesting. So I signed up for that. And then when I started doing it, I I really liked it. And then we did a bit of darkroom and I thought it was fascinating. So I wanted to do more. Yeah. So then I signed for this school, which was, I think, like a two years or three years, I don't remember, degree. And I started doing that while I was still at, at in high school. So oh, I, wow. So I would spend like a lot of hours in the dark room, you know, Is that like, like printing. The, like the equivalent of like what would be a community college out here or something like you were? I don't know about photography schools here, mm. but it, it was like a private school. and. But it was separate from like high school. Yeah. And everyone was older. It, it was mm. you know, people in their late 20s, in their 30s that were interested in photography. It was not like for teenagers. Or, oh, wow. I was like the youngest. Uh, and that's why I learned about film school because my older friends were going to film school. So yeah, so I did that, and it, you know, it was ma- mainly like trying to find your voice as an author, you know, black and white, like artistic nude photos and very kind of cheesy stuff that probably I wouldn't <laughs> want to look at it now. And learning to develop and and do all sort of different techniques in the darkroom. So yeah, that was in Argentina. And uh, so you went back to Argentina and you were working for the magazine. Yeah, so I went back. I was working for the magazine and I was hanging out with my boyfriend who was in film school and becoming like a DP of his year. So I wanted to go to film school. So I saved money half a year. And then when the year started, I, I went to film school. I got a... In Argentina? In Argentina. I what, was the, what was the school? It's, the, it's called Fundación Universidad del Cine. Uh, University of Cinema Foundation is a private uh, institution and they give a lot of scholarships so they gave me like a partial scholarship and I started to do film school at the same time that I was working in the magazine but the magazine was really intense it was you know many hours a day plus two days a week where the magazine you know is closing it was like a weekly one yeah it was like until very late so I after a few months I realized that I was not gonna have the time to do film school properly, you know, get to do all the exercises and all the things that you needed to do apart from attending. And also it was really hard economically to, even if I was working, you know, to pay half of the scholarship and and survive. So my parents were saying to me, come on, come back to Spain. There's a great film school here. We're going to pay for it if you come back. So at some point I realized that that's what I wanted to do and I wanted to do it properly. So I went back to Spain and did like a bunch of like exams and things you have to do to qualify for university when you're coming from Argentina. Mm-hmm. And then after, you know, six months, whatever, I got in the film school in Barcelona. So my parents were paying for it and nice. all that stuff, but I didn't like it. 
I was, uh, you know, by then I was maybe two years older than all the fellow students because <laughs> I had been, you know, yeah. going around the world. But it felt a lot, a lot older because I was from another country. I had moved, you know, to a different culture, adapted and moved back, then lived by myself when I was 18, uh, supported myself, had a like super real job. And suddenly I was in film school with kids that were 18, you know, very kind of going from mom and dad's house yeah. to, the, to the film school. So I didn't, I, I felt really out of place. It didn't feel like my place. And it was a new film school at the time. I, I didn't think the teachers were so exciting. And I don't know, I just didn't connect with it. So I started to look at other options and just research, you know, what were at the time the best film schools in the world. And I came across the National Film and Television School in England. And I was like, yes, this is the place. It's a very technical school. They only take six people per year per speciality. Oh, wow. So it was maybe, you know, three, four hundred people that wanted to apply for cinematography, that applied for cinematography. And there was like a quite extensive selection process to end up with six cinematographers. So I applied there and I was really lucky to get in. So I did a three years master's degree there. Oh, wow. And yeah, it's, I think it's the only education after you know compulsory <laughs> high school that i started and finished <laughs> in my life um so was there ever any uh doubt about cinematography as you were going through film school did you ever look at it and say like well what if i what if i was a director what if i was a screenwriter or was it cinematography all the way yeah it was no doubt also when you got into that school you're only doing that obviously but i had no doubt no for me i think it, i just had this photographer soul and then it just mm -hmm. transitioned to cinematography and even now, you know, like people ask you a lot if you want to direct. Uh, it seems like people expect that cinematographers actually want to direct. And now when they're, Some do. When they're getting to middle age or whatever, they're going to yeah. go into directing. Or now with all these women, you know, like Reed or Rachel, like going yeah. into directing uh, as if it was a stepping stone. But I personally never felt it like that. And I don't feel it like that. And I love my job. And I think it's absolutely the best job in the set and I would not change it for anything. That's great to hear. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, there are plenty of people who, who do both or go, you know, do a new thing and come back yeah. or whatever, you know, but, but uh, no, it, it's fascinating. And so I wouldn't say that your work has a specific look because you have so many looks, but I do think that your film, uh, your work has um, a certain uh, attitude, a certain texture to it that, that distinguishes it from other cinematographers, I would say, and maybe maybe you would have a clearer definition of it than, than I do, but I would say like something expressionistic or something impressionistic about it that I see in a lot of your work. And granted, a lot of it was our, our commercials or music videos or stuff, um, uh, you know, and uh, again, movies like Neon Demon. But I feel like we're living in a time where like naturalism is something that people are always pushing. It's always naturalism. And even if you're making like a, a sci-fi movie, I feel like a lot of the sci-fi movies I feel are trying to be grounded in a real world. And I feel like your work has has such a, an energy and a pop to it that doesn't feel like it's always in this world. Is that something that you intentionally do? And like, when did that start being a thing that you you were moving towards? You know, I, I get this observation a lot from people and I, I don't think there's an intention or mm. uh, an agenda or a, I think it's something that you can observe from the outside, but yeah. I don't really control it. What I can say is that I, I, I work mostly from my gut and, and things are not very rational. Of course, there has to be a degree of rationality with all the 
technique. Yeah. Nowadays, less because it's not film stock, so it's like even you need <laughs> less technique. So, you know, th- th- there is a rational side with the technique, also with handling a team of people, handling schedules, you know, deadlines, uh, time constraints, budgets, and all of that. So it's not like whatever, you can be like totally high shooting something. You need yeah. to be... You, you need well, that's the thing is, you know, it's it's just it, every style takes a certain amount of effort and intention uh, to create. And I understand that it's probably hard to see the style that you're doing because that's that's just what you do. That's that that's your thing. But when you were in school or in, in you know, between school or whatever, do you find yourself gravitating towards like looking at art or looking at photography that has kind of a you know, expressionistic, impressionistic, falvistic, you know, stuff that that isn't realistic or naturalistic. Are you drawn to that kind of material? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm drawn to that kind of material. I, I'm drawn to the good kind of that material. Of and I'm also drawn to a lot of, you know, great stuff that it's more naturalistic. I think I, you know, I have absorbed like a sponge, a lot of information and inspiration from all the people in history of art and also from people today, mm. in contempor- my contemporaries. But again, what I was trying to say before is that even if there's a lot of aspects in which you have to use the right side of the brain a lot and, and plan and think and uh, all these things, I really try to work from my stomach and I really mm-hmm. try to free myself from all of that and and try to look for the purest place that resonates with whatever is the emotion that I'm trying to convey with images. Mm-hmm. And even though I have to deal with all these other exactly, logistic like stuff. At a certain point, you have to say, well, we need the grip truck will be parked over there and the yes, generator will be over there. Yes. Can you walk me through that process? Can you maybe give me an example of any film that you or, or TV show or a uh, commercial, whatever that you've worked on where you where you went through that process and, and, and how you go through figuring out how do you work from your gut when you when you have to like, you know, requisition equipment weeks in advance or whatever? Well, I mean, but uh, working from your gut doesn't mean that you improvise in the moment. It, mm-hmm. it means that you approach the material from that place, from a more instinctive and intuitive place. Yeah. Uh, and not so rational and it's just trying to create that channel of communication inside you and keep it clean and not get it filtered by all these you know thoughts that have to do with the practical yeah. you know stuff for example in Neon Demon um, you know Nicholas always shoots his films chronologically oh I didn't know that so we did have a lot of plans. We had to because we had no money to do that movie and um, of course you have to choose the locations and know more or less what are going to be your angles and what you're going to do because you do have to plan and you have to get guys to lay cable before and all that stuff. But also because we're shooting chronologically, we have the possibility of change a lot of things. So the script changes and evolves organically as you go. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because you're not doing like separate pieces of a puzzle that then they have to all go back together again. You're just going organically. It's more like a painter that is, you know, a painter that has its canvas for the first time and it's starting to paint it's not told like if you want to use yellow you have to do it on Tuesday because that's when we're renting the yellow and then <laughs> blue is on Wednesday yeah. and then you can go back to more yellow because that, that was it so yeah. that do all your yellow stuff that day uh, but that's how we make films so it's um, it deprives the, the creative process of a lot of this freedom to create to make mistakes to experiment 
and that's why it's more an industry than an art most of the time yeah it, unless you are financed by the mafia and have like months <laughs> and months to shoot your movie Ilya and I always talk about like, you know, when when you're talking about a specific cinematographer, are they more artist or are they more plumber? Because there's there's places for both, mm-hmm. you know, like there are people who go in and execute and, and, and are predictable and, and give you exactly what you want. And then there a lot of the people we talk to, I think, here are more artist where they're mm-hmm. less thinking about the technical and they're talking a little bit about what you're talking about. But then mm-hmm. there's always that encroaching like, again, you know, like, you know, yeah, it's it's, it's Wednesday, so we need to get the yellow going you know and and uh that that's always the challenge and that's why when i see stuff that's as um as experimental and bold as as the work that you do it's amazing it's fascinating and also like it's 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 not the run of the mill and so how are you managing to uh to creep more art in into into the business part well i think you cannot be an artist cinematographer or a business or technical or whatever cinematographer i think to be a good cinematographer you have to be both yeah uh because you cannot say oh well i'm really arty and i need all these things to make myself i mean a big part of our job is to make it happen with the tiny elements that we have which are getting it's getting harder and harder every year yeah and so you have less time less people less resources well and you've even done a lot of commercials where you have an agency on set yeah telling you what you can and can't do or how to show the product or whatever yeah so I think you know a good cinematographer is mainly somebody that learns how to navigate that and mm-hmm. how to use all the technical stuff the organizational administration politics and all these aspects at the service of his or her art yeah and it's like a very complex dance that you i think at least in my case i've only learned through the years of doing this you know in films in commercials in music videos because each each discipline teaches you different things and then it's just about the hours you know like the pilots have the flight hours you know it's exactly the same you know the more flight hours you have the more you've been in all these different situations and the more tools you have to deal with new situations and you see them come in a lot sooner and you know all that stuff so let's uh go back a little bit so when you got out of school what direction were you going in and like how did you manage to break into the business so when I was in film school, I did a lot of short films. Some were part of the program and some were people that would gravitate towards the cinematographer students at the National Film School and look yeah. for them for other short films. Uh, at the time in England, there was a lot of money from the government for film and for developing new filmmakers. So they were funding a lot of short films, Film 4 and Film Council and BBC films especially. So it was very, very fertile and when I graduated, I had shot maybe 15 or 20 short films. Oh, my God, really? Yeah, on film, you know, with proper process of, you know, preparing for two weeks, shooting yeah. for one week. So I probably had done the equivalent of, like, two movies already by oh, wow. then in, in terms of flight flight hours, as we said before, you know. <laughs> um, but I, I had tried a lot of different looks and stuff because every short film had its own identity. And at the time, it was everything was on film, so I was always also trying all different possible treatments in the lab and you know bringing my my past uh, photographer in the dark room times into you know also the, that, the that, lab. Was, that was a time when like lots of experimental lab techniques like ENR were like really taken off right? yeah exactly because it was like the the time to to try all these different things and you know everyone was excited about trying new things yeah so 
and in my film school I was super lucky you know I, I was shooting every week uh, you know on film and I could even take a camera on the weekends with film stock with like three minutes of 16 millimeter film stock oh, wow. shoot whatever I wanted develop it on Monday and watch it on the big screen on Tuesday oh that's so all my weekends I was shooting something and I was like I wonder how Chris Doyle this this thing you know is it like <laughs> shooting at six frames and then printing it? and I was just like trying it and then doing it were you uh, at that school? Were you shooting films for like directing students? Yes. And were were there other contemporaries at the at the school? Like, who were the people who were there? And are you like still in touch with any of them? Yes. Uh, so directors uh, was Alexis dos Santos, who I shot Glue with, mm-hmm. and then he shot a couple of other movies. Uh, Joachim Trier from Norway, who shot Louder Than Bombs, Thelma. Uh, Those were the the two directors that I work with and I think the ones that probably did uh, best. Was the school like pairing you up with directors to work with? Well, sometimes we could choose Mm -hmm. and then we would all gravitate to the people that we liked. And sometimes as exercises, they will force you to work with specific people, yeah, which sucked. But <laughs> I guess it was a preparation for the real world. It was. <laughs> <laughs> so when you get out of school, uh, you know, how did you go about uh, navigating your way into the business? Now that you have all the all these shorts under your under your belt, how, yeah. how did you use those? Uh, well, and actually, when you left school, did you pursue specifically being a cinematographer, or did you try and work your way up through being, uh, you know, in the camera department or whatever mm-hmm. as you started? So I was really lucky because my school was already oriented to people that were in the camera department, Mm -hmm. were a bit older, and then wanting to do the step to cinematography. So the other five students were all focus pullers, first ICs. Oh, really? And I was the only one that was a bit younger and was this photographer with very little film experience, just like a little bit of film school here and a little bit of film school there, had never been in a real set in her life. And for some reason, they took me in, you know, Mm-hmm. You had to show work, so I showed a few short films that I had photographed before going to England and, and my portfolio of black and white photography. So during those three years, we were all, you know, helping each other in our exercises, so we were all crewing for each other. And they were all a lot more experienced than me because they were all, you know, good focus pullers with years of experience. So they were teaching me how to load the camera and how to focus. Sometimes I had to focus pull in a project for them. And yeah. I was like the worst focus puller. You know? <laughs> uh, so they, I, they they taught me all that stuff. But the thing is, because that school was so good and had this prestige and only takes six people a year in the British film industry, everyone is kind of looking who's going to come out of that school. So when we graduated, I was hoping to be discovered and I didn't really have to like go and try to be a focus puller or a trainee or like start from the bottom in the camera department. So that's what I did. I I finished film school. I continued doing short films with directors from film school and and a network of people that you get to know while you're in film school. Uh, So maybe, you know, the first and second year I have smaller jobs, you know, low budget music videos, like really survive with very little, but keep shooting. And keep like increasing your network of, you know, of people. And I was really lucky because we had Seamus McGarvey coming to teach for a week. Oh, sweet. We had yeah. him on the podcast. Yeah. So Seamus came to teach for a week, I think when I was in the final year. And we really hit it off. He really liked what I was doing and, you know, kind of became a little bit friends. So when I was graduating, I was asking him some questions, you know, like kind of like a mentoring thing. So when I graduated, I cut a showreel and I and I showed it to him and 
and he showed it to his agents, who were the best agents in town in London, and they signed me. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was really, really, really lucky in a way. So I, I started to get, you know, really small jobs and start to build up slowly from there, but it was always as, in, as a cinematographer. That's great. Yeah. Um, and so you were London-based. Uh, how long were you in London, or are you still partially London-based? No, I'm not anymore, but I was there for a long time. In uh, 98, I started film school, and I stayed there until 2006, 2008, like permanently. And then I started to shoot a lot of commercials in Barcelona, where my family lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I because in London I was doing like short films documentaries and music videos but I was not getting a break on commercials I was always like doing like the freebie the charity yeah. commercial uh, and then somehow I started to get commercials in Spain there was this Spanish agent that saw my work and started to get well, me well now jobs. you're the hotshot DP from London well no I was like really I was 20 something mm-hmm. <laughs> was nobody but I started to get this you know really well paid commercial jobs uh, I mean you know, for for somebody like me at the time, it was like one job was paying like my whole student debt. Oh, know? nice! So it was really cool. So I ended up commuting a lot between the two places, and at some point I moved to Barcelona for a few years. But then, as soon as I moved there, I started to do commercials in England as well. Mm-hmm. So once I got my now you're the you're the slick DP from Barcelona. Yeah. <laughs> So once uh, once I got a break with commercials in England, then I started to get really good jobs in England. And then I was living in Barcelona. So again, I was on the plane all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, by that time, I had done a few movies as well, of course. And yeah, so I lived between Barcelona and London for a few years, trying to figure out what to do so that I not spend most of my life on a plane and airports. <laughs> and then my movie Milk of Sorrow was nominated for the Foreign Academy Award. So I ended up coming to L.A., Nice. And then I met a lot of agents that wanted to sign me, and I saw the sun. And I. How, how does that work though? Like when yeah. you when you left Europe, were your agents in in Barcelona? Your agents in England? Where did you also leave them and move on to to representation in America? Or are you still with all with all um, those people? Well, that's a complicated conversation. But sometimes you can. I mean, I have an agent in in Europe and an agent here. Yeah. you can have agents in in both of course, different yeah. places. That, I'm yeah. just curious. Yeah. like you know, like you you build a network and you build a bunch of fans in the business mm. in one place, and then you move to another. And yeah. you know, like you know, when you come to a new place, there is that fresh like, oh, now you're that new hotshot DP from yeah. from Europe, and you know, but also like there's the whole network of people that you left behind, and yeah. they're doing top notch work as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's really about the network. It's not so much about the agent. But yeah, for me, it was like, a, you know, when I decided to come here, uh, you know, take, you know, I fell in love with one of the agents that I met. And I was like, yeah, you know, I think this woman is cool. Like, we can do some cool stuff together. So I got my visa and uh, and I started to come here to do work and meet directors for movies and do commercials. And I just love the city. I love the city so much. I'm with you. I love it. So here. I was like, why am I going to try to live in Barcelona, which is nice, like LA, you know, it's like sunny and yeah. beach and stuff, but I'm actually never there and I'm working in London most of the time. I don't want to stay so much in London because it's very cold and miserable and rainy in the <laughs> winter. And I was like, well, LA really has both things. I, I've got the industry that I have in, in England and I have the weather and the nice quality of life that I have in Barcelona. And so I decided to move here and, you know, I have this agent that I felt, you know, was really uh, gonna fight for me to get me to know people here and start from zero in a good way. 
And it was a good moment. You know, I had that movie and stuff. I had some good commercials at the time with like the top English directors. So it was the right time. So I just made the move and so, I stayed. Uh, where in the in the process of doing these commercials, and I don't I don't know if this is even a cool question to ask, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, where in the process do we start to see your voice start to make itself so present, or was it always there? And I guess it, again, it might not be it might be something that you're just blind to because it's your voice, so you yeah. don't you don't you don't know what what it is. But it's but but you must know at what point did people start knowing that if they went to you, they would get a certain that that there was a a different thing that you did than from what other DPs did. I have no idea about that. Is what you're saying? I, I think you can't. There's some things about yeah. yourself that you can't see. Uh, I mean, you know, people tell me a lot that my look or whatever it's very distinctive, and then they can recognize uh, my stuff. But at the same time, every piece I do is very different. I mean, well, sometimes I do some fashion stuff that can look a bit neon demon, yeah. you know. But um, you know, if you look at neon demon, it's very different to Gloria Bell that I shot right after. And it's very different to Honey Boy, which is coming now well, in November. Is it maybe that you have a certain appeal for uh, to directors like uh, Nicholas Winding Refn or Floria Sigismundi, who are known for daring visuals, and they know based on the other work that you've done, or maybe because you've been working for directors like that, that that people can bring you in and and get a different kind of creative take. Are you like when you're working on something like Neon Demon, or um, there was the Rihanna video that you shot mm-hmm. for Floria Sigismundi? I don't know if you've done other stuff for her. I didn't see her name anywhere else but it's like how how much of that is is like the visual inventiveness that they bring to the table and how much of it is them trying to draw visual inventiveness out of you mm-hmm. well i think there's um you know that's the beauty of filmmaking and collaboration i think i gravitate towards these directors mm-hmm. that have a very strong vision and that are very visual because i know that they are going to push me and challenge me to go one step beyond and that they're going to allow me, give me the space and the freedom, you know, to to experiment and get out of my comfort zone and do something that is challenging for me, which is what keeps me alive as an artist. And, you know, those directors have to be people that are brave and bold and and have balls and are not scared (laughs) of failure, that they just go with their extreme visions. And they are many times really about the process, not so much about the result. And they, you know, they would rather fail, but try something that it's, you know, brave and daring and alive instead of staying in, in the safety of the establishment. Yeah. So I, I, to continue to be who I am, I have to look for a boss yeah. <laughs> that is that way. Because if I go and work with somebody that is very conventional and does shot reverse shot and it's all about performance and wants a flat lighting, I'm just going to the absolutely extreme. I know it's ridiculous. (laughs) But, you know, then I won't be able to do what I do best because Mm -hmm. I won't have the room to do that because I would be controlled by fear and, you know, a desire of safety. And and that's that's not what I want. So I, I I look for the crazy ones, you know, the crazy <laughs> ones with with vision and talent. There's lots of different kind of crazy, but I look for the good crazy ones, you know, with with talent and and, and vision that I know that will really push me, you know, and challenge me. Can you can you walk me through the uh, the process of of any of the projects that you've worked on where you found that you were working with a director who was like pushing the envelope a little bit and kind of bringing you along and and how that challenged you? 
I, I guess I'm, I want to hear to a degree like how you were saying, like, you know, you work with bold and daring directors yeah. and the two of you kind of feed off of each other's creative energy. And I just kind of want to I, I feel like it's it's very helpful to understand how you see that, because it's it's uh, it's something, you know, like the director DP relationship is is kind of intimate, like the two of you are basically mm-hmm. making making the movie and no one on set is going to be as in the bubble as yeah. the director and the DP. So. The kind of creative give and take that you're talking about is is like unless you're in the room with the two of you, no nobody would know how the ideas build upon each other. Yeah. And so I I love hearing like how a director says, hey, you know, we're doing this with art department. And then the DP says, oh, here's how I can do that with lighting or Mm. here's how I can do that with a lens Mm. choice or here's how I can do that with film stock or whatever it is. So I'm just curious how that process like if you could walk me through how that process has worked, at least, you know, like one good example of that. Yeah. You know, it's all about the people, really. I think you just, of course, you choose on the script, but then as importantly as the script is the director. And sometimes you don't know them enough. I mean, you just know their body of work if this is not their first movie. Yeah. Uh, And you meet them in a meeting for an hour and you have to judge from that information that you have. Um, And for me, it's always about, you know, of course, first the script, I have to resonate with it a lot and like it in many many levels but then if that works as like the first step then you know I, I have to fully resonate with the director's previous work or mm-hmm. when I meet this director with whatever this person has to say you know why are you interested in this story like what is your point of view what do you want to say you yeah, know? yeah how and it's always about that journey I'm gonna have with this person it's always about collaborating with another human with another artist that has something to tell and how are we going to tell it together? So, for example, in Honey Boy, you know, when I got the script, I didn't know Alma's work. I just got the script and my agent at the time said, don't even read it. They don't have no money. You just did Gloria Bell <laughs> with no money. Like, you don't want to do a film with no money, you know. Then he said, like, it's Shia LaBeouf. It's going to be complicated. You know, all the things were pointing <laughs> and don't do it. And I was like, I'm just going to read it anyway. I think it's kind of interesting that he wrote it on rehab and it's about his story. And I think he's a great actor. So I read the script. I was like, wow, there is something interesting here. You know, it's like a fascinating story about identity, about, you know, relationship with his father, abuse, a, a kind of confusion between reality and acting and I I thought it was fascinating themes even though the script maybe needed some work and then I said I'm just gonna check out this director woman and see you know what she's done and she she this was her first movie but she's done two documentaries before Mm -hmm. and um, her first documentary Bombay Beach um, I, I watched it and I was like mind blown by her language as a filmmaker as first time filmmaker yeah. on that documentary and I knew it was I, just her I, and a camera I could see like wow this woman was by herself with a camera living with this family she portrayed this reality in a super poetic way very bold very brave very alive I could see that she was working also from her guts mm-hmm. and I was fascinated by her voice and I thought okay she can do something really good with this story because this story is like a fiction, but it's actually, I mean, it's not fiction. It's totally based on his life, but it's not going to be a documentary. It's going to be a fiction narrative film yeah. with actors. Uh, but it has a lot of documentary in it because Shia is going to be playing his own father. And I could see how she 
could work with him and the emotional journey that the movie was going to be like this kind of film therapy situation uh, and how she could do something very evocative and moving and touching um, and poetic in many moments with this material. So in this case, you know, I, I just took a leap of faith on that and I was like, not sure the script is totally ready yet. She actually hasn't done any movies before, but <laughs> I believe in this person. I really believe she has a vision and she doesn't care about not failing, about getting it right. I could see in her material that she was not about like, I have to get this, I have to cover this, you know. Yeah. It, she just went in each moment with what her God was telling her and then she got amazing material and she found a way to edit it all together even if it wasn't following some conventional rules of storytelling language and she did something amazing so when I get all those elements I'm like I'm in you know I feel I'm gonna go in through a very good journey with this person regardless of what's the final result hopefully we do a good movie yeah. out of that um, but, but I can see enough elements to feel I'm going to be challenged as an artist. I'm going to be collaborating with somebody that is going to care about the same things that I care and therefore is going to give me the room to get the best out of myself. When you're working with someone who's a first-timer in, in this way and she's kind of going from her gut the way you're talking about, do you ever kind of say like, hey, you're probably going to want a close-up of blah and like, are, are you suggesting that kind of stuff? Or are you going along with, with her plan uh, and just and just executing it to your utmost at that point? Hmm. That's a really, really good question. Um, it's never her plan because you do the plan together. That's good, why good. you make sure, you know, you're choosing directors that are wanting you to collaborate with them. They don't have like already a master plan that you yeah. just have to execute. So it's usually your plan together. But yeah, of course you learn everything, you know, when you're working and the plan always has to change and then you learn that you need other things. And the big challenge normally with the first time directors, I haven't worked with so many of them. I mean, I work with them like in short films and stuff, but yeah. in films, um, you know, because I'm always looking for something very specific I guess or challenging or stuff like it, it's more difficult to find it on a first time director yeah, yeah. but I did find it in Alma uh, but she wasn't exactly a first time director because she had done the documentaries um, it was a first time narrative narrative director so the the, the biggest challenge uh, with with this film was that actually just to part of my job is as a cinematographer in general but especially if I have you know more than I don't even know how many films I've done, <laughs> probably more than 12 or something feature films under my belt, and this person has none as a narrative. Of course, a big part of my job and my responsibility is to help at some point and say, hey, I think before we move on, we're gonna need this close-up, because not that I'm more clever or whatever, like I've just been there a thousand times and I yeah, yeah. I know more. So you kind of have to do that and, and producers will hire you, to, will ask you to do that. That's why you're also like babysitting the, the first time directors in a way. Uh, but there's a very fine line because I'm, the thing is if I was doing more conventional movies with more conventional people, I would say, well, you know, it's like very easy to do this job. Yes, and I can, by numbers. Yeah, you're just running the show basically and, you know, just saying we need to shoot it this and this way and, and stuff. But that's not the kind of projects that I choose because yeah. it's not what I like to do. So I'm choosing people with very strong vision. So when I choose Alma, I choose her because she has a super strong vision. So at the same time, she doesn't have the experience that I have. So 
I have to be very careful to not let my experience contaminate her rawness and her freshness and her uh, innocence sometimes yeah. because I know what the problem were, that we're going to have like 20 minutes later or, or tomorrow <laughs> or yeah. in the next scene because even if maybe I'm right and we do need to do that close up or whatever or something different because it's going to be a problem I I have to be careful that I don't uh, castrate her her vision because sometimes that ingenuity uh, of not having been through you know the process so many times and, and not seeing these things can give birth to some amazing things so you also need to respect their process of learning because they learn in every movie every director learns in every movie and yeah. even the most experienced directors shoot less movies than us cinematographers because we can shoot a lot more movies um, than them um, so sometimes even though you know what's coming you know there's like an earthquake coming you know yeah. there you see it in the horizon it's not a good idea to to let them know too soon because if they don't they kind of have to see it coming themselves to believe that it's coming yeah yeah and and they have to go through the process of learning you know this is a problem and how do i solve it and stuff and if you are all the time trying to protect them from those mistakes it's like like a mother that is how you say over protective of yeah. a child and doesn't let the child fall helicopter dping yeah yeah no, that's interesting. Yeah, so it's a very it's a very fine balance, but of course there's some some hits that you need to warn them, you know. And even if they don't see them coming, you have to say, "Sorry, this one like yeah, you have to listen to me because you, this is gonna hit you bad." Exactly, or <laughs> yeah. something like you can't get out of the scene without this one shot or yeah. something. Like I, I I mean I do wonder about that when when you have a director who who works intuitively like you're talking about, and you know obviously they hired you. And if they'd hired a different DP, it would look, the movie would be completely different in every way, mm. you know? And, and so, you know, to a degree you go, well, okay, well, they're hiring you because, because you're going to bring a certain look and a certain discipline that you just bring based on your mm. experience and based on, on your knowledge and a certain amount of experimentation. Cause some, some DPs are hired because there's no experimentation going on. Yeah. We're just trying to get exactly the same thing that we, that we wanted. So, so to me, that is an interesting uh, quandary when you're working with someone who's kind of like a raw emerging talent. You don't want to squeeze that out of them, you know, but um, th that's the exact kind of answer I was looking for, though. Mm. I, like I wanted to understand, like, how how does somebody who who works in an intuitive way, the way that you do, how do you how do you mind meld with mm. with a director? Yeah, but that's a really interesting dance again, you know, because they chose me because they want my stuff. Mm -hmm. But I chose them, you know, when I chose to work with Alma. That year, that was last year, I turned down 50 movies that had 10 really? times the money that she had, you know, yeah. in their budgets that I decide I don't want to do for one or another reason, you know, because basically I don't, I'm not feeling <laughs> like, you know, the butterflies in my stomach or something. Yeah. And then when I feel it with her stuff and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to make any money with this. I'm just going to, you know, have to find a crew that wants to do it and, you know, it's going to mm. be tough and da, da, da. But I feel the call to do this. It's because... I believe in this person. I trust on this person's vision. I trust that she's special and that she's going to take me to a new place and a special place. And, mm -hmm. and a new part of me is going to come out of the combination of me and her. Like another part came of the combination from me and Sebastian Lelio in Gloria Bell 
and a different part, a very wild part came from the combination with Nicolas yeah. or with Lim Ramsey or with Floria. So once you choose this person and you're like, I'm just gonna go in a journey with this person, is is really about mutual trust, you know? And, and, and you want, as a DP, you wanna be at the service of that vision of that person. You don't want them to get domesticated so that you, they don't <laughs> make mistakes. You want them to be like always at the edge of making their mistakes, make some mistakes, and just protect them from the big mistakes. <laughs> you know, that's amazing. Yeah. Again, I can see in the work that you're doing, all of the stuff I've seen of yours really does feel creatively like it's sticking its neck out and trying something. You know, like it. it none of it looks like the same old, same old. Hmm. Um, and I, and I also feel like to a certain degree, a lot of these things, like Neon Demon, is the kind of movie that people are going to look back as a visual reference. Hmm for decades for you know forever because because it it was so daring but every time someone does something that's that daring like they they run the risk of possibly setting the new standard that everyone mm. kind of has to go along with and to a degree do you find that like working with somebody like uh Nicholas Winding Refn like you're he's kind of giving you kind of uh I don't know how to put it like creative cover because his reputation is 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 that of of like a bold visual visionary so having him on board like you as you as a cinematographer can kind of go crazy and, and and try bold stuff even on a commercial which you know commercials are notoriously buttoned down and and controlled by agencies but i imagine that's not the case when they hire the two of you no not the case at all i mean not the <laughs> case when they hire nicolas ruff and they know he's gonna do whatever he wants yeah and they hire him for that. And, and, they, and I don't know him, but I assume, I assume he's very nice and professional and you know ha yeah. handles everybody you of know, course he knows how to do yeah. his job and that's a very big part of his job you know but he is also very selective and chooses you know to i don't know if at some point he really needs money he might do something <laughs> else but like all the commercials i did with him you know they were always really interesting visual projects where we could really play you know even like the hennessy commercial i think that was the first one we did after neon demon mm -hmm. Basically, they just said, you just have to do these four or five chapters, you know, like the different tastes. And it was like fire, wood, uh, chocolate something, and I don't even remember. <laughs> and so we just sat down in Cinecita in Rome, eating really good pasta and brainstorm about whatever images we could think of that suggest the different tastes that this Hennessy drink has. And so we're like, what if we explode some trees? And what if we do this? And, <laughs> and, you know, we just had certain resources. We had a studio, you know, some budget. And we just brainstorm a list of visual, you know, ideas. And we executed the, the ones that we, that we could. Uh, and it was like a totally free <laughs> brief. Of course, this is like a very rare situation. This is yeah. not your typical commercial situation. But normally when they hire Nicolas, it's this kind of projects where they... They want him to to do his thing. If you want somebody to execute something conventional and normal, you're just not gonna hire him. So yeah, yeah. yeah. What uh, like what brought you to work uh, with him? What how did how did the two of you end up meeting and working? Um, he was looking for a for a DP for for Neon Demon. I think the usual people that he had worked with uh, in films and in commercials lately were not available. Uh, it was a very low budget film, so I guess a lot of people were not really interested. Um, and at some point, he asked uh, Stephen Pizzello from American Society of Cinematographers magazine uh, if he knew any women, you know, any female DPs, because this was the first time he was going to make a movie about 
women. Mm-hmm. And so Stephen, who is a big fan of my work, suggested my name. And I think then he took a look at my work and wanted to meet me. So I was called to a meeting. I, I was given a fake script, which I didn't know it was fake. Uh, so I read the fake script and I went to the meeting. And we talked for a couple of hours, you know, in his house. And we really connected. Uh, you know, I had a lot of Danish friends in film school. And I think the Argentinians and Danish there's something there in the DNA that we really connect. So we had a really good meeting. And then um, at some point he asked me what I think about the script. And I said, you know, it's like it has so much dialogue. Like it doesn't read like one of your scripts. But everything we're talking in this conversation sounds fascinating. And I really want to do this movie with you and talk about these themes. And having seen your previous films, like I know we can do something amazing. When I read the script, I don't quite see it there. And he was like, oh, don't worry, you have the fake script. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, it has all this dialogue and all these descriptions so that, you know, I can get finance and people think I'm going to do a horror movie for teenagers. <laughs> and I was like, okay, can I read the real script? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I will send you the real script. It has a lot less dialogue. And I'm like, oh, okay, so you're going to do the, like your thing, you know, with no dialogue, slow motion, cool music. And it's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so I drive home and then uh, I get a call from my agent saying, Nicolas really likes you and wants to offer you the movie. Sweet. And I said, well, that's awesome, but I don't know what's the script about because I just read a fake script, he said. And he's like, well, I think it's kind of the same story, but like just a different version of the script probably. And he said, do you want me to tell them to send the script and then you read it and then you decide, but maybe, you know, they're not going to send it. Maybe he doesn't want to show it. Maybe it's going to take two weeks and he meets somebody at Chateau Marmont and offers it to somebody else. Um, or you just want to say yes now and you have the movie. And then I said, well, look, it's Nick Reffin. I love what he does. Uh, I think he's a very brave and daring director that takes risks. Sometimes it really works, sometimes it doesn't, but it doesn't matter because the, what matters to me is, you know, that attitude, that braveness. And I thought I really respect him as an artist and whatever we end up doing together, it's going to be a challenging and crazy and fun ride. So I'm, I'm in to do anything with this guy. It doesn't really matter so much about the script. It's, it's going to be insane and it's going to be cool. So I just took the movie and then I got the script like a few weeks later. Cool. That's, that's a great story. It is a great story. But that one, I tell it everywhere though. All right, well, I think yeah. that about wraps us up. Is there, uh, outside of your website, is there any place where people who are looking for your work can find you? Instagram, Twitter, wherever? I rarely use, I mean, I have Instagram, but I don't use it so much. But yeah, I have an Instagram <laughs> account. It's my name. All right. You're being really modest. Your Instagram is great, by the way. I but I, post, I posted something today, and I hadn't posted for like three months. Like that I'm easy really shot with the with the fencing too. Yeah. For that commercial. That's, that's I wanted really to good. post a story of something that happened in the set yesterday, and I don't even know how to upload a story. That's how bad I am with uh, Instagram. Well, hopefully everybody will uh, will go check out your website at least and just see your absolutely amazing work. Thank you so much Thank for coming. You. It was a real pleasure meeting you and talking. Thank you, to you. guys. Thank you so much. It was great. Okay, that was Natasha Breyer. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great hey, having you. Awesome. Hey, uh, Ben, it is time to pay the bills. Can't wait to pay those bills. Kind of exciting for us. Uh, paying the bills is going to be mixed up a little. In addition to uh, Hot Rod Cameras, who's the typical sponsor of the show, we have a new presenting sponsor of the show, or a new uh, long-term sponsor, I should say. It's a company called Aperture, which 
is a sort of misspelling, very sort of hipster, you know, spelling of the word is aperture. It like a P R three. No, there's Z no there's no numbers in pi. there. Yeah, no, not 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 quite so much. But we'll put it in the show notes with a link. And uh, Aperture has decided to come on board as a long term sponsor, and they are kind of. Uh, becoming a big deal out there there is a lot of people working with it and their stuff is moving further and further up the food chain onto professional sets you gotta tell me what they do they they make lights they make all kinds of lights lights is like their their bread and butter they they've been involved in some other projects over the years but lighting is sort of their their thing and like what kind of lights like leds or Yes, LED lights, and they, they make, they're, they're making a big move into incandescent lights. They're making wow, that would be uh, <laughs> they're they're moving backwards. No, yeah. no, Aperture actually uh, LED lighting was not their sole thing, but they have uh, really kind of exploded in the last couple of years, and uh, they're involved in all kinds of different forms of social media. But uh, there's a good chance today that uh, on I would say uh, a certain level of production, their products are ubiquitous, but they are quickly rising up the food chain. They're creating LED lights that are um, uh, bicolor, that are single color and full RGB. And their R- RGB seems to be the thing everyone wants now. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a hot thing. It, it saves you from having to carry around rolls of gel and expendables and things yeah. like that for a lot of people. But uh, so Aperture, welcome aboard. That's that's wonderful. We're excited to have you. And now short ends. Okay, so uh, short end time, Ben. You, uh, I, I, I do have a, a short end, and you know what it is because you sold it to me. I did. You sly devil. I've already forgotten. Right here, right, right in this, in this very room. I'm Mr. Short Term Memory. <laughs> you sold me a DJI Osmo Pocket Camera. Oh yes, I sh- certainly did. That camera kicks all the ass. <laughs> it does kick all the ass. And yeah. it's it's really interesting to me because like I've. I've done some stuff with DJI um, drones. I, I'm not me personally flying a drone. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not there yet. But working on projects with them. But DJI has quietly become an amazing camera company, specializing in these uh, three-axis gimbals attached to anything. And this camera is like a little bigger than a pen you would walk around with in your pocket. It hooks into your phone your iPhone or your, or your Android or whatever, and you can use it as a monitor and also to control it. And it gives you full gimbal control. And it's shocking to me how steady and smooth the shots I've been getting from this thing are. And, uh, as unsurprisingly, I've been mostly using it to film my kid running around, which is, uh, as you know, a super chaotic thing. And I'm getting these like steady cam, like rock solid shots. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not trying to make them look good. I am, but it's like, it it does a lot of the work for you. I kind of am tempted to say, "Welcome to 2019, Ben." But yeah, this is this is the Fair new re- the, the new reality. You can uh, spend three hundred dollars, which is about what that thing costs, or four hundred dollars. Four hundred dollars. Four hundred dollars. But uh, and people can buy it from you, by the way. Right? They can. They can buy it from Hot Rod I, Cameras. I'm, I'm not. I'm not here to like log roll for Ilya necessarily. Log roll away. But uh, but yeah, I mean, like uh, wherever you're going to get it from, you should just go ahead and get it from uh, Ilya. That's right. So uh, anyway, but this thing fits in your pocket, takes a tiny little memory card and records brilliant, steady images and 4K panorama shots. No, it's really it's really freaking cool. It gives you 4K. I mean, like I was thinking about this, actually, going back to what we were talking about, about the red and you using you having used to uh, work for Dalsa. Like how much would it have blown your mind when you worked at Dalsa for me to walk up with a DJI Osmo pocket camera and show you like, oh, hey, here's a 4K camera. It weighs like six ounces weighs not nothing. even yeah 
it, it weighs like just holding your hand in the air is more heavy than, than this camera. <laughs> and it's 4K. And it records onto this little teeny tiny micro SD card. Uh, if you heard that sort of sound in the background, that was the sound of everyone's brain exploding in 2008 when you walked up with this 2019 piece everyone, of technology. And everyone and, yawning in 2019. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. We already have one of those. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, here's the thing. It's, it's a very interesting time because I'm already seeing like knockoffs of the Osmo Pocket. Like there's already like a, a cheaper knockoff uh-huh. sort of version. I, I doubt it's any good, but it's like as soon as someone innovates and comes out with something cool, boy, there's someone kind of like right there behind it is like, oh, I can I can do something that looks like that. Or, well, and, and you know, my thing, as you know, is I always like the big sensor cameras. I like the full frames. You sure. Know, like the, when the 5D first came out. Oh, you're I, in love with that. Totally in love with that. The new the new Panasonic, I think, is awesome. And so like on a cellular level, I was like, I'm not going to like this tiny sensor camera, but it just gives you a different kind of shot. And uh, honestly, you know, if you were making a, a feature, I'm sure that I'm sure we've already seen shots from this on, you know, network television and features. Cause you really, I mean, like you wouldn't intercut it with a dialogue scene where the background's super out of focus. But if you had like, you know, establishing shots or, you know, car chases or whatever, this camera would be amazing for that stuff. Oh, yes. Um, it's essentially one of the cameras that comes out of one of their drones. And uh, I, I have a uh, corporate slash real estate sort of client. And uh, he told me that he's taking it to do all his quick walk around shots now and has had uh, zero complaints, even though now he's not carrying around 20 pounds worth of gear with him. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's giving you a shot that looks like a Steadicam shot. That's right. Um, uh, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to be down on uh, the Dan Nieces of no, the world. Oh, my God. It's not you're, the same you're thing. Not, you're it's, not going to replace It's not them. narrative. It's not. No, you have no selective focus control. You have everything in, in, in yeah. focus. You have no real, ex, ex, you know, really good exposure control. It's all autoing everything. The well, shutter you, ramps you, you, you up. Can, you, can, you can. There's a lot there's of manual auto. Controls. Yeah, sort of. You're going to put filters on and all kinds of stuff, too. Other, otherwise, your shutter is going to completely override yeah. what you're doing. So, yes, it, you know, we talk about how amazing this is. We talk about how cool it is. But at the same time still very limiting for a professional you can you can sneak a shot in here or there it's certainly better than a lot of phones but at the same time it's like does it take the place of a big sensor camera a manual camera of course no it's not. it's, it's, it's a not. different it's a different thing but i you know um i think about like when we had uh, brandon trost on here and he'd shot uh crank two and they had shot everything on mini dv like tiny mini dv cameras oh yeah and i feel like if you were doing the equivalent of like a of a crank two today You'd use like a you'd get twenty pocket twenty Osmo pocket cameras and just sneak them all over the set. You know, maybe wrap them in green so you could key them out if you saw them in the shot. I guarantee you, from the sound of your voice, that something like that is probably happening right now. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, okay, so my short end this week is uh, boy, this is like we're a non-technical podcast, and this is like our tech podcast. We talk sorry, about, we're, we're talking about red. We're talking about cameras. All we used to talk uh, about was tech back in the day, like in, in 2000, <laughs> like around the time I met you probably until, until you set up your company, like we would just sit around and, and talk about this tech bullshit nonstop. Uh, all right. Well, uh, I'm going to talk about a little something you had mentioned in our last episode when I said that I'm on the ASC uh, lens committee, you had no idea. So that I didn't. The, yeah. So the, the motion and I'd <laughs> forgotten since we last spoke. And so you could have told me that for the first time again, you would have gone really. So Whoa. motion imaging technology council is what I think that it's now called the MITC. They had a rebranding mm-hmm. at some point, but uh, 
inside the Motion Imaging Technology Council, there's various sort of subcommittees, and one of these committees is the Lens Committee, and inside that Lens Committee, that's even broken down into various things, but uh, we have a nice Slack channel, and we've been talking recently about forming the Lens Police. So the Lens Police, uh, you probably are unaware, most people out there who uh, buy and use lenses are probably unaware, that a few manufacturers out there might do what some people would consider a morally dubious uh, proposition of taking a product that is made by somebody else and putting their name on it and saying, this is now my product. This is not, this is my original product or they do a very superficial change and then say, Hey, you know, buy my product. That's really, really expensive. And it does all this cool stuff, but really what's inside of it is exactly the same as something that's far less expensive and has a different brand name on it. So, Hmm. uh, so we have to walk sort of a tightrope because we're not trying to t- torpedoes anyone's business out there. But at the same time, it's really, really difficult for those of us who understand and know what's going on to sit idly by when someone says, oh, this new lens is so amazing. It's so fantastic. It's the greatest thing ever. When you're just inside your brain going, yeah, that's exactly this other lens that they just put a different name on and they didn't really change anything. And boy, it's, you know, maybe it looks slightly different, but you're really just paying a huge markup on something that is a, pretty much a commodity. So, yeah. So, that's, so what can the lens police do? Though? Yeah, that that's the thing. We're kind of discussing that right now. It's like, how involved do the lens police want to be? Do we really want to call people out and say, look, that is, uh, it doesn't matter that you like that. That thing is the same other thing over here or... Do we want to try to have a more nuanced take and do nothing or maybe from our little, you know, uh, corner of the world say like, hey, for those of you who are out there thinking about this, maybe here's like a good housekeeping stamp of approval. Like, hey, maybe uh, this company came and sent us the lens and we took a look at it and said, yes, this is not like these other things on the market. And this is significantly different enough that it is its own uh, unique thing and not just uh, a commodity that has been a new badge slapped on it. It's like you don't usually see the people who tune high-performance automobiles buying a Ford saying, we tuned it up, and now it's no longer a Ford. If anything, they'll say, no, it's the Shelby Ford. No, it's like we took this thing, we did something to it, and now here is this new thing altogether that Ford wasn't I mean, going to produce. I don't know if you can, but can you give me an example of what you're talking about? I probably shouldn't just because this is a wide and far reaching podcast and I don't want to like, you know, uh, start a whole controversial thing, but I'm happy to have the conversation on, you know, on a smaller basis. But, uh, okay. I will give you one example right now. There was a company uh, a few years ago, uh, that is no, no more called, uh, Hanse Inotech. They're a German company and they sold a lens product called the Solare or Solare lens. Uh, that Solare lens on the inside had $300 Samyang optics, which was essentially proven by, uh, by a gentleman named Matt Duclos. And, uh, he put, he pulled it apart and compared the pieces. And, uh, I, and some other people I know also did some testing to basically prove that these lenses were, uh, fundamentally identical. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what the Hansa Inotech people decided to do was threaten to sue they said, oh, no, we've got proof that this is our original thing and we're going to sue you, which was a very, uh, you know, they doth protest too much sort of move for for some people yeah. who are doing something like that. Uh, where, Sounds like a certain president of the United States I might have heard of. Go on. <laughs> uh, so, so here's the thing. Uh, Hansa Inotech now now to business. And uh, I don't think that. Uh, the revelation that what they were doing was taking inexpensive optics and putting them into new housing and then uh, selling them for a lot more money uh, was the thing that 
did it because there are still some people out there who seem to love and swear by those those lenses um they didn't do the best uh after care support they were really poor about some quality control issues and i know that we sold them for a little while before we knew really what was uh the truth and what was the whole story behind it but uh, we had suspicions from the beginning but when you are working with a company you're kind of obligated to believe them when they say we are doing this you don't expect people to be lying straight to your face and then yeah, later it's fraud. We, it's yes, that, that, fraud that's right and then we have a moral responsibility to then go to our customers and say hey remember those those things that we sold you uh i have to tell you now that i have reason to believe that this is what this company did mm-hmm. and that doesn't exactly put me in a real uh happy place when it comes to the to to, to the fraudsters and doesn't exactly make me want to work with them ever again. And so they're they're truly on my shit list and a lot of other people's shit list out there for being uh, ex- extremely unscrupulous with their, their business practice. So uh, I have no idea what's happened with them. We parted ways many, many years before they uh, disappeared, but they're still, their product is still being sold by some of the other people out there. And uh, I did my due diligence. I went around and I told all those companies when I found out what they were doing, I said, Hey, look, you know, you are knowingly getting involved with these people who are doing something that I find to be unethical and uh, not a single one of them stopped what they were doing. So, (laughs) so anyway, um, it it, clearly it, uh, you know, I'm their competitor. They may want, not want to listen to me and I didn't necessarily intend for this conversation to go down this path, but yeah, lens police. I I feel like there's a place. I feel like there's a, there's kind of a point to this because uh, if you don't have the right tools, if you don't have the right training, you're relying entirely on what someone else is telling you is uh is what it's they say it is it's like would you be able to tell a flawless diamond maybe would you be able to tell something's actually 24 karat gold maybe but you know in order to educate yourself to actually figure these things out takes a lot of work if there a problem with your car where you're gonna be able to diagnose it most people go to a mechanic no. when you when you are an, a a lens expert or you have enough experience uh, some of this stuff might jump out at you immediately because uh, Solaire with the Samyang lenses or the Rokinon lenses, they, they're not the only one. There are other people out there currently selling lenses and some of them, because they've been called out a little, have actually backpedaled and started saying, well, you know, when, when push comes to shove, we're going to talk about this. But uh, some other companies, they haven't talked about it and they will maybe never talk about it or have actually changed their tune where they used to say what they were doing and now they've stopped. So I wish people went more for like the, uh, Hey, it's the Shelby Ford sort of idea rather than trying to take full intellectual property credit and saying, Hey, it's our, it's our own original thing. But at the same time, I think they know they wouldn't be able to charge as much. And there might be some people who would catch on to what it is that they're saying. And, uh, I think they're only going to do it as long as they believe they can get away with it. Interesting. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, well, I, I hope it's fascinating. I hope I didn't bore everyone to tears. Didn't bore me. I okay, think, good. I, I think it's really interesting. <laughs> okay, so anyway, lens, please. I'll, I'll keep you posted to, to let you know what happens with that. As you know, I'm fascinated with all kinds of fraud and the way people go about defrauding other people, and uh, and and so uh, this is yet another uh, thing that I will pay more attention to in the future. Yeah, uh, there was a um, a French gentleman who uh, was at uh, NAB, I think either last year or the year before, and I want to say they were called like sky view lenses or something they claim to be the world's smallest cinema lenses and they uh were these little tiny uh chinese lenses that uh, you could buy anyone could buy for like 25 or 30 bucks with a few cosmetic changes but it was like 100 percent the same lens and when i 
pointed this out to the people over at Cinema 5D, rather than acknowledge that I knew anything that I was talking about or that this could possibly be true, they chose to then like uh, accuse me of, you know, having some sort of axe to grind and then uh, like blocked like my messages so I couldn't like respond Aww. or something. Well, hey, you know what? It's Cinema it's, 5D. Don't be like that. I like <laughs> Cinema 5D. I'm, it's a well, bummer. I'm, well, I'm sad to hear well, that. Well, you don't need to be you don't need to be sad to hear it. It's like I think that there's a lot of people out there who uh, you want to believe what someone says is true. But uh, there's plenty of evidence that if you look closely, you can actually see that maybe something isn't true. And then, uh, yeah, then how you deal with that, I think, is very interesting. How people, uh, you know, then respond to the the actions is uh, is, is also very interesting. And, it, you know, the Hansana took people that said they were going to sue. That was their that was their whole big the thing. And I got to say that that doesn't seem like it's going to be the most effective effect. First of all, they're in another country, but second of all, it's like there's lots of evidence to actually support. And if they did actually have to go to court, what are they going to do then when someone goes like, well, here's this thing and here's this other thing and they're identical. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, not a winning situation Oof. anyway. So, uh, so I think that basically does it for us today for episode 50, the all tech, the all tech. God, we're, we're such a non-tech show and now we're all tech. Eh. It, it had to happen. Uh, well, you know, if you uh, if you disliked the show tremendously, don't worry. I think we're going to have a return to form next I, week. I, I, I like that it's kind of like tech retrospective talking about like red of old, you know. Uh, yeah, a little bit. But I mean, we, we, we touch on a lot of different things in this one. So yeah. so who knows? So all kinds of cool stuff. Anyway. So uh, who do we need to thank? Uh, let's thank our producer, Alana Cody. Kick ass. Uh, let's thank our fantastic editor, Ben Katz. Woo, Ben Katz. And uh, that's it. No one else to thank. No one else to thank except Kay's Alatracci. Oh, God, that's right. Kay's. Yeah, we should probably thank Kay's. Kay's, who, uh, I, I, just a quick plug, uh, which I meant to do at the beginning of the episode, so I'm going to do it as we do the next wraps at the beginning of the episode. Uh, I, my second season of 20 Seconds to Live, uh, the web series I've been doing since 2014, uh, we we just dropped the second season, and uh, in the, our final episode, in our climactic season capper, uh, Kay's uh, did one of the most impressive VFX shots that I, I've had in anything I've ever done, and he did this whole VFX shot. Wow. All him. Wow. He did actually uh, in, uh, bring a friend of ours named Jonathan Fig out to shoot a drone shot that he added into our movie, into our <laughs> into our episode. Man's man, ladies man, man about town, K. Zalatracci. Yes. And he did all of the music that you heard in the episode. That guy. That guy, man. So, Ilya, where can people find you online? <laughs> you can find me over here at Hot Red Cameras, where I sell the DJI Osmo and all the other tech that we've talked about on the show. And, and you also distribute free T-shirts to anyone who shows up and asks. <sighs> For a little while longer, we're almost out. Okay. <laughs> so the the uh, while supplies last, I'll, I'll put that disclaimer in there. And uh, you can find me anywhere uh, that people gather on the internet, except for Snapchat, because I'm too old. I am on Instagram. Oh, you're on TikTok? I am not on TikTok. That's true. <laughs> I don't know what the kids are doing. There, there's always somewhere younger and cooler. That's, and there always will be. And eventually, this is this is the, the signifier of oldness, is eventually you go... I don't care anymore. And you're like, okay, yeah, they can have Snapchat. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't care. Um, anyway, but you can find me at uh, benrockonline.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Um, you know, all you're the, everywhere. All the important ones, specifically the ones owned by Mark Zuckerberg. 
All right, so we'll be back with episode 51. And we might even stop saying what number the episode is. We'll see. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.